Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on when to call after receiving a birthday card, interrupting in general, posthumous thank you notes, how to handle canning jars and their return, and managing work relationships. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript about being better at parties. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, your extra question of the week is about digital RSVPs for weddings. You can listen to your ads-free version of the show with its extra question by downloading it at awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com or on your phone through the Teachable app. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I'm going to do that thing that you just love what I do. (laughs) Talk about the weather and the change of seasons. It is cool. It is crisp. It is definitely fall. I'm going to embrace it this year, cuz. I'm going to embrace it because this is always a big month for us. September is usually when we hold our in-house train the trainer. And we are on deck and ready to go. We're ready to go. Are we ready to go? Oh, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. We're ready to go. It's back to school. (laughs) It's time. So we have we have trainees actually coming here, and if some of you are listening, we are really excited to see you in a couple of weeks. Dan, tell us a little bit about what the training's like. We have been doing a business etiquette train the trainer and a children's etiquette train the trainer in some form or another at the Emily Post Institute for over ten years. I mean, somewhere between ten 15, and fifteen. Yeah, I think years 15, now. Yeah. And we've done it different ways. This last year represented a real shift in the program because we launched an online version of our business etiquette train the trainer for the first time. And that went really well. It was it was uh, still going well. <laughs> it was something we had debated for years. And yeah. the, the platform finally kind of caught up to the capabilities that we would want it to have to offer one of our trainings online. And it was a really popular program. But we still do the in-person training and that comes at the end of September and it's got a slightly different feel to it. There is a, an opportunity to dive deep, to spend time with other people who also are invested in this material and there's something about face-to-face interaction, about sitting down across a table with someone and going over a curriculum and talking about how we each connect to it. That's always a learning experience for me, I think, as well as the people that are taking the course. So oh, yeah. I look forward to it. It's definitely... I wouldn't want to call it a high-stress event, but it's we're hosting, and we're spending a week hosting. So there, there week is and a half hosting, yeah. all of that on top of the usual workload, but it's also it's a rich experience. So I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. I'm also looking forward to this show. We have some great questions and an interesting postscript segment that you've set up for us. It was a pleasant surprise. I did an interview almost a year ago, something like nine months ago, that finally got written up. And I just really liked the way the article came out. And I can't wait to share it with everyone. Yay! Let's get to some questions. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Sustaining members, put sustaining member in your subject line. 
leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag AwesomeEtiquette so that we know you want your post or question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our show begins with a question titled, Card Call? Dear Lizzie and Dan, I'm a longtime listener and love the show. As I live in Australia, I'm lucky enough to get the podcast one day ahead due to the time zone difference. Oh, very cool. A conundrum I have every time it is my birthday is whether I contact someone to say thank you for a birthday card when it arrives before my actual birthday Or if I wait until my actual birthday when I know they're going to call me anyway. On one hand, it seems rude to not acknowledge the card or gift and say, oh yeah, I received it, thanks, on the phone. But it seems awkward to call someone days before about your own birthday just to have them call again with even more well wishes on your birthday. I'm mostly referring to relatives and acquaintances that I wouldn't otherwise speak to frequently. Your thoughts would be greatly appreciated. From Mrs. Ellis. This is a good question. Mrs. Ellis, greetings from the exact other side of the planet on a cross-dateline communication. As far as your question goes, the impulse to thank someone when you receive a card is understandable. And I applaud your etiquette impulses. The, The requirements around that are... I'm going to say very loose, (laughs) that cards in general, it's nice to acknowledge them, but they don't even necessarily, in terms of of traditional etiquette, require a thanks. It's 
It's nice when you talk to someone to say, oh, I got your card. It was so appreciated. But you don't necessarily reply with a card of thanks yourself, and you don't have to pick up the phone. So in this particular case where you're anticipating another communication happening a couple days later, I think that's a perfect opportunity to offer that warm, genuine, gracious thanks and let them know how much you appreciate their thinking about you on your birthday. Granny Pat used to always put on the exterior of the envelope, open on 1018. Ah. And so I would have to, I would wait. It was like, the, you know, the other cards I would just open like when they arrive because it's fun in the days leading up to your birthday to start, you know, feeling a little special. And uh, in the end, I would uh, with Granny Pats, you'd always wait. And then you're opening the card on the same day that she'd be calling anyway. So the whole thanks can happen all in the one moment. And that's kind of a nice way to set up that connection. But the other thing is, the, these folks aren't going to know the day that you've received the card on. So there's there's no – I don't think they're waiting around thinking, oh, I sent it a week early. I hope it got there. And that can happen. And if you have that person in your life, you just say, yes, it did. I'm so excited to open it on my birthday. Or, oh, I opened it. It's lovely. That might prompt them to not actually call on your birthday because you've already talked. And I know that, that like friends of mine and I, if we talk the day before or two days before my birthday, we don't always talk on the actual day. Sometimes it's just a text message or something like that. Mrs. Ellis, we hope this helps and we wish you a happy birthday. Oh, and I want to write the cousins, Jimmy and Alice, and thank them too. I don't know how you do it, Wally. You make it seem so easy. Our next question is titled, Interrupting Jellyfish. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I recently found your podcast and am making my way through all your episodes, slowly but surely. I'm enjoying it immensely. I have a few conversational etiquette questions. Is interrupting someone while he or she is talking still considered rude? My gut is telling me that the answer to this question is yes, but I see here it happens so often on TV, podcasts, at work, at social gatherings, etc., that I'm wondering if it's more socially acceptable, and I'm just being old-fashioned. If it is rude, I'm wondering what is the best response when I'm part of a conversation where it's happening. Usually, if one person in a group conversation cuts someone else off, I try to respond to the interrupter with as short of an answer as possible, and then turn back to the person who was interrupted and say something like, Can you repeat what you just said? Or, What was the last point you were making? I know it's rude to completely ignore the interrupter, but I also don't want to encourage or reward the bad behavior by engaging with them if they've just interrupted someone else. Is there a better way to respond? Also, what do I do if I'm the one being interrupted? I usually stop talking when someone interrupts me. It seems strange to continue talking at that point, since that would mean two people are talking simultaneously. But should I say something after the interrupter is finished talking? Should I just let it go? I look forward to your advice, as it will be greatly appreciated. Be well, Kimberly. Kimberly, thank you so much for this. Um, interrupting is, I mean, even even our listeners call Dan and I out on interrupting. It's so hard. You're, you're right and smart to look beyond just the immediate conversation at how our culture talks and interacts with each other. There are so many places where we do end up interrupting, whether it's intentionally or whether it's unintentional, whether it feels like it's just the back and forth and the flow of the convo or whether it really feels like you can't get your head around a conversation because this is so distracting and difficult. Interrupting is both it, it, it's something that can be good when you've got someone who is just 
running on and on and on. I mean, then you're trapped in a position. You need to find a polite way to interrupt. It's not always a bad thing, but it's all in how you do it. If you're supporting what someone's saying, if you're agreeing with them, if you're trying to add something to what they're saying, it can be interpreted in an entirely different way. Although even that there's a caution about because there's that quality of always finishing someone's sentences for them that can also be really controlling in some ways. And it communicates in some ways that you know what they're thinking better than they do. And it's it's tricky territory, but there is latitude within it. Among very good friends, it can be a sign of good rapport. And if you're having a meeting that's on a conference call or a video call, it can be so distracting that it makes conducting business absolutely impossible. Interrupting is a really tough topic because – There's rudeness that could be at play on both sides of this in any given situation. There's the rudeness of an interruption. There's the perceived rudeness of an interruption. There's then whether or not the interruption was actually a good thing. There's some conversations you just bat things back and forth and you're in it and going and it's great and it's not actually interrupting. But to someone watching, it might look like interrupting. Interrupting is not an easy thing in etiquette. When people, Dan's like sitting here so quiet, we're trying so hard not to interrupt each other during this actual recording. It's our third go of it, guys. <laughs> um, the reason why it's so hard, though, is because if you've got, and I'm going to give the example here, Dan, if I'm just running on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And I want to encourage you or try to close it out. At some point, what could be going on is, Dan, I'm being rude to Dan because I'm just running on and on and leaving him no place to come in and join this conversation. In another place, if Dan and I are talking and a third party comes up and and they just jump right in and start talking about something else, yeah, that feels like a big interruption and a hijacking of the conversation. If Dan and I are talking, I'm someone who uses a lot of um, uh, totally, yes, oh, yes, I see, I got you, encouraging or just I'm following you, I'm with you type of language when I speak to someone if I'm with someone who doesn't do that, they might feel that every one of those are interruptions when really I'm totally invested, focused on them and not looking to say anything. It's complicated and it isn't easy. And it's why the how matters for each instance of interruption. I'm thinking both about that original rudeness the or potential rudeness, the interrupting and the response, how you manage your response to it, because that's a lot of this the heart of this question is what do I do when I experience it myself, when I watch it happening to someone else? And for me, so often we talk about that point of finger at someone else, three fingers pointing back at you, that when I experience that rudeness, particularly with something that's so complicated, with something that's so in the moment could be working, could not be working, maybe I really perceive it not to be working, <laughs> but the other person is completely unaware of that the way it's coming across or the way I'm perceiving it, that oftentimes the best answer is that's when you tell yourself, I'm going to be a better listener. (laughs) I am going to not engage in this behavior that I find so awkward, problematic, difficult, hard for me to witness even. Frustrating. Frustrating. And there are all those active listening skills, the nonverbal cues, the eye contact, the 
the little verbal affirmations, the repeat back what you've heard. So you're not just interrupting someone with some idea of your own, but you're actually reflecting back to them what they've been contributing, the follow-up question, then the original thought of your own. And walking through those active listening stages can be a really useful tool to interrupt that impulse to speak or at least to stay conscious about how you how you do it, how you play that role of, of joining a conversation. If you are going to interrupt, if you decide you're going to do it, there are polite ways. Those magic words are magic. <laughs> totally. Excuse me. Pardon me. I'm sorry. I just have to jump in here. Something you just said was so interesting to me. I'm really curious or I had to share with you that I also X, Y, or Z. Those are the self-reflective thoughts that I see interrupting happening. What can I do to be a better conversationalist? And I, I also like that acknowledgement. This is a conversation question. I'm curious, Cousin Lizzie Post. <laughs> how, how do you think it's best to respond if you're in a conversation and you really perceive that someone is being rude? They're interrupting someone else. Maybe you notice that person noticing it or maybe totally. it's just really awkward the way you described someone has arrived and they're just – the conversation is going in different directions or is being interrupted. It's so as an observer of it, I try and I try to lend a helping hand when I can. So if an interruption happens during and you could you know you can see when someone really wanted to say something and or you know that they have a story about this very thing cuz you know them and you know it's a good story to bring up and you could see it bubbling up in them and then this interruption happens and they can't do it. It's perfect. I think, and Kimberly, it seems, does this, but it's fine to redirect that conversation back to it. You know, Karen, I know you have a story about this. You know, feed it to Karen. Make it easy for her to jump in and say that. Or, wait, you looked like you had something to say back then. Do you mind if we go back to that? Do you still have that thought? Those positive and encouraging ways are really good. Doing the thing where you kind of almost like passive-aggressively punish the interrupter isn't going to be good behavior on your part. That's just the truth, is that if you try to give them the silent treatment, just look at them and ignore them and then continue the conversation, or if you say, oh, thank you for saying that, and then carry on your conversation, any form of that or other versions and iterations of it are going to make that person feel shamed for having interrupted. And a lot of the times, interruptions are completely innocent. And I think that when something's intentional, maybe that shame can be something we talk about and investigate another time. But when it's unintentional and in social situations, most of these things are unintentional. It's really nice to entertain the interruption and then use the language of, and wait, can I get back to that point you were making? Or I'd love to hear the rest of that story. But try to do it in a way that doesn't make the interrupter feel like they're the worst, most awful, horribly behaved human being on earth. We often talk about how the how matters. And then yes. this is a perfect example of that how mattering. There is a an art to good etiquette and how you manage that conversation, <laughs> whether you acknowledge someone and redirect back with a smile on your face or whether it's with a little bit of side eye and everyone knows it, it can make all the difference in the world. And you keyed on the idea of assuming the other person's good intent or let's just say lack of bad intent. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be enough. Yeah. To keep you in that that safe territory where you're not responding to rudeness with rudeness or meanness with meanness or even unintentional rudeness with meanness. And I think that's that's the the territory you're trying to look for, you're trying to find. And I think it's the same territory you're trying to find when you're thinking about how to respond when it happens to you. 
when someone starts talking and you're talking, yeah, probably you're going to stop talking. The idea that you would both continue to talk simultaneously is just ridiculous. Okay, so I have someone that, not you, but there is someone I work closely with in life who we do this and... Like, Glad it's not me. It's no, it's not you. You and I have other interrupting things that happen, but this this one, it's it blows my mind with this particular person. How and we joke about it. How often we've said three or four sentences to each other while talking over each other, or you know, the one that kills me too is where you have to be like, oh, 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 wait, can I, can I, can I, can I just interrupt? Can I interrupt? Can I get in there to interrupt, please? Can I interrupt? You're like trying to make the interruption, and it's really hard to do. And it's, I know who you're talking about. It's just so funny. And it's so it's again, it goes. I always go back to that intention because it's frustrating when you're trying to say something and someone won't let you in. It's frustrating when you're trying to say something and someone's trying to jump in on it. We'll all get there. It's this is the moment where we're so used to the instant, the fast, the immediacy of everything. Slow down. You'll get there. I've often learned if I just listen, if I just hit pause on myself, I can get through that interrupting moment a lot easier and with a lot more benefit, like benefit of the doubt in my head for the other person. And that just keeps this light, positive feeling even in an awkward moment. I want to acknowledge yeah. that there are situations and times where this kind of behavior becomes persistent, where it's defining in a relationship and it deserves addressing. And there is an in-the-moment addressing that can happen where you can be a little cooler about the way you disengage or the way you respond to the interruption. It may or may not be effective. That that hint, and I think it needs to just be a hint might or might not be picked up on. And if you're going to drop a hint, I think you also want to be in a place where you would be willing to talk with someone about it if if it went to that next level. And I think that it's worth that also. There are definitely relationships in my life where I've talked to people about how we communicate. And if someone persistently, consistently interrupts you, finishes your sentences, cuts you off, doesn't hear what you're saying and immediately starts talking about other things in a way that that is disrespectful. It's okay to talk with someone about that, but that's a different kind of conversation. That's not an in-the-moment response. That's about how you have discussions and relationships and set boundaries. And maybe that's for another question. I, I want to interrupt myself because this topic is so interesting. We could talk about it for the rest of the show. Kimberly, thank you for this question. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about a really rich etiquette topic. Well, we know some different ways of settling disputes. Each person gives in a little bit, and then both can have part of what they wanted. Our next question is about a posthumous thank you. Hello, Ms. Post and Mr. Post-Senning. I got married to my new husband on August 4th, 2018. Congratulations! My uncle Scott and his girlfriend at the time, Carol, sent us a wedding check in the mail as a wedding present. However, Carol passed away on August 29th, 2018. Is there such a thing as a posthumous thank you card? Do I address the card as Scott last name and Carol last name? Other information that might be helpful here, my uncle Scott is the biological relative. Carol's mom and daughter are still alive, but I have no contact information for them. I'm willing to find out that information if needed. Thank you in advance for your help. Sincerely, Stephanie M. Johnson. Oh, Stephanie, we are sorry for your loss, but congratulations on your wedding. 
this is one where I think I'd make sure to express sympathy to my uncle and to your aunt's mother and daughter. But I would make sure that's happened, and uncle being the main point of contact there since he's your your biological family. And then I would send the thank you card to your uncle, and I would mention in the body of the card, so not on the address and not in the dear so-and-so, not in the opener, but I would mention in the body, I really wanted to thank you and Carol for getting this lovely gift. It'll be really understandable that this gift was purchased when Carol was alive and that she has since passed and that you're just getting to the thank you notes. It's This is totally normal and in all the right timelines and everything. And I think that's probably the best way. We often say that sending, addressing things to the deceased can feel very awkward, especially when things are so fresh. And so we would suggest you leave her name off of the addressing and the opener, but put it in the body that you are thanking her as well. I really like that idea of also being sure to send that sympathy card. That, oh, yeah. that, that I think helps set you up really well for that thank you also being received and putting it into a context that shows that you are understanding well everything that's going on in your Uncle Scott's life. Stephanie, thank you for the question. Thank you so much. We hope this helps. our next question because I've been up to my ears in canning tomatoes this summer. (laughs) This question is titled Canned. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. When you receive a homemade canned item, what is the etiquette around returning the jar? I don't expect it back because it is part of the gift. I certainly wouldn't ask for wrapping paper back. On the flip side, I can for a hobby and am financially stable enough to replenish my jars the following year. In the peak of canning, it was a means of survival and jars were to be reused year after year. Thank you in advance for your assistance. Canned. Canned. I I feel you. And actually, one of our listeners way back in the early days um, mentioned this because I said, oh, no, that's silly. Of course you don't give the jars back. It's like you don't ask people back for plastic Tupperware that's just your kind of cheapy plastic Tupperware. And sure enough, a listener wrote in and said, you know, that hurt because I do and it's expensive. And this is like I really care about this and it would be helpful to get it back. And so I say that the the truth is that it's up to you to decide whether or not that jar is of value to you to be returned or whether it's something that gets added as the gift, as, as Cand is saying here. It's completely up to you. If it's something that I want brought back to me, I often put my name on the bottom of it, and that's a really good indication. This falls into an interesting category because it's just not as well known that a jar like this would be something that would be necessary to return. It's not a casserole dish. It's not servingware. It is more ubiquitous than than those items, but it's also not disposable. It's not paper. It's not... You know, Tupperware, which again, I know I keep saying Tupperware and that's a brand name, but but there's versions of storage containers that are really meant to be just given away and they're very inexpensive and it's hard. Yeah. Others yeah. That are Interrupt. Really... Come on. Come on. Interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's other Tupperware that's very expensive that is yeah. like serious stuff. Part of your kitchen yeah. setup and getting it back would be like getting back a casserole well, Like dish. I would expect to get a small Pyrex Tupperware back, you know, a glass Tupperware. <laughs> we keep saying Tupperware. I I expect to get glass storage back, but and this is glass storage in a lot of ways. I mean, I use my mason jars. I 
first read this question, I agreed with you 100%. And that my initial thought is that usually the canning jar is part of the item that's given. Yeah. I think that's the way a lot of people are going to be operating in terms of their basic expectation. Like you, I also thought getting it back might be nice. I'm particularly imagining the person receiving it who doesn't use mason jars as glasses. Yes. For whom it becomes a disposable item. And the person who gives it being somebody who repeatedly uses canning jars, someone who would (laughs) use it again the next year, use it again later that summer. I heard you mention maybe putting your name on the bottom just so you could identify it. I was thinking about just saying something when you gave the gift. Super easy. I'd love to make this for you again next year. If you're not going to use this jar, give it back to me. And I think that that type of just sort of simple, easy ask. Yeah. would be my approach to to something like this. It would give someone the option of returning it, but also say essentially, if you love your mason jar and you're <laughs> going to keep using it by by all means, like that's. If you're not able to offer the mason jar to someone to keep, then I would um, I would consider just simply saying, if you like getting the jar back to me would be great if you can. A lot of times, even with the nice dishes, they don't always come back. So it's why you can hear Dan and I always adding the if you can to this. But it, it is okay for you to ask for this. I don't want you to feel silly if this is if you are someone out there who would like the jar returned. It's okay to ask for this. Canned, we hope this helps and encourage you to keep it up. It's the fall. It is canning season. And I'm sure everyone in your life appreciates those little gifts. That helps us all to live together well, doesn't it? But I've never taken anything that I shouldn't have. Well, let's see. Our next question is titled, Sir, I'm not here for friendship. This is a toughie. I threw a tough one in. I think this is a tough one anyway. (laughs) Hello, Dan and Lizzie. I've been listening to your podcast for two years now and love the positive difference it's made in my life. Here's my question. I work as an administrative assistant slash office manager for a financial advisor. I've been at this job for almost two and a half years and am the only one who works at our main office. Two other people work remotely in other states. I don't know if it's too late to fix this issue, but I'm curious about your advice. My boss is a man in his mid-70s, whereas I am 26 and female. I struggle with our relationship dynamic and communication. I approach my work like a professional. I like to come in, accomplish tasks, and leave. I am not at this job in order to have an extra relationship or friend. He, on the other hand, does not have those same boundaries— He will comment on my clothing or jewelry, talk about what he ate for supper, ask what I'm having for lunch, discuss his plans for the weekend, share stories about his past, ask about my husband's work schedule, and even describe his colonoscopy, grrrr, in parentheses. My strategy in the past has been to politely listen without asking additional questions and to not share much about my personal life besides basic answers to his questions. I thought he would eventually catch on to the idea that I don't like mixing my personal and work life, but he hasn't. I'm torn because he's a fair employer, lets me keep a flexible schedule so that I can have my own business, and is understanding about family emergencies. 
But does all that mean he can set the tone for the office? I observe that he is like that with others, too, wanting to be close to them and treating those relationships more seriously than others do or feel comfortable with. If this is a legitimate problem, how do I address it without offending him or jeopardizing my job? I'm sorry for the long question, but I want to be clear that this isn't a one-time, too-personal question or topic. I hope to hear a reply on the podcast. Best wishes, work-life boundaries. So tough. This is a tough one. It's a really tough one. It's a long question, but it paints a really vivid picture. Yeah. I can – I feel like I understand the type of relationship question that's being asked. When you were giving us the title to this question, I was yeah. thinking it's not show friends. It's show business. <laughs> and, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we know and talk about how business is built on relationships and that investing in professional relationships has real rewards and – what is appropriate in those situations is a little bit gray area. It depends on different people's comfort and I see an understanding of that in the way this question is asked. There are clear examples of where boundary crossing happens that go a little too far and some of those little red flags for me are um, commenting about someone's appearance Clothing in the workplace. Jewelry. Yeah, that one too much. Talking about personal health issues when someone else isn't giving you cues that they're open to that conversation. Yep. I think both of those are really clear, specific indicators of someone in a professional context taking things a little too far, being a little too personal, a little too familiar, a little too forward, and in ways that might really legitimately and, and in a way that I wouldn't just want to excuse make someone else feel uncomfortable. The places where my my needle starts to tick the other direction are on answers to questions like, well, does he get to set the tone for this office? Well, if if he's the person he's the boss. who runs the <laughs> office and is hiring other people, absolutely. There there yeah. are places where that is the prerogative of a manager, a boss, or a supervisor and if He's really trying to foster – and this is acknowledged in the question – relationships with other people in similar ways, then that might be about the tone of the type of workplace that that he's trying to establish and, and set up. I think one of the other things I'm noticing about some of the topics that were brought up is that some of them are very low-hanging fruit tier one topics. I mean like you said, the the clothing and the jewelry and the and the colonoscopy, no, not so much. Um, but, you know, what you ate for dinner the night before or what your weekend plans might be, that can get dicey a little bit. Um, but some of these are very, very benign things that, that people chat about when they're in an office together on a daily basis. And I think a, a little bit you do kind of just and I, I hate using this word. I'm using the word hate to describe this. I hate using this word as if it's not a good thing because it is a good thing. It's a useful tool with us to just be polite, to politely listen to someone is not a crime against your boundaries and it can be it can it absolutely there are times where it is you know if it's your attire all the time at work from your boss yeah that is that's not something you politely have to sit down and listen to but wow today's a great day or the weather looks beautiful i hope you have nice plans for the weekend yes you i'm i'm going to defend politeness and say that it is a tool you should use and turn on to not be so invested in this moment Am I wrong, Dan? Can we use politeness as a tool? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> and an effective tool. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's really occurring to me here is that there's this intergenerational question. Oh, yeah. And it, it, 
it can make it feel like there's a lot of distance, I think, between people when you've got that many generations separating you. And and this is – if generations are 20 years, this is a solid two-generation jump. Mm-hmm. And I think that that effective politeness, that saying to yourself, I'm going to turn on a little bit of deference because this person is that much older and they are a supervisor in this work relationship and situation. So I'm going to give them some latitude in terms of the type of social tone that they set. And as long as they're not then criticizing me for not getting my work done mm-hmm. or um, – finding fault with me for whatever, for that being a distraction from the other work. Because what I want to acknowledge here is that um, assertion at the beginning that I come in to do work. I Mm -hmm. want to accomplish tasks. I want to be seen as a professional. I want to do a good job. Mm -hmm. And as long as this isn't really interfering with that, I I like your idea that politeness doesn't need to be a burden. Mm -hmm. It can just be, frankly, one of the requirements for this job. If it is more than that. If it is a situation where it's harassing or it's just it's just too much, it really is Colonoscopy. annoying, aggravating. I mean. <laughs> if, that, if it's more of that than the other thing and, yeah. <laughs> and only you are really going to know that, you can have a discussion with your boss. You can talk to him, say, you know, there's something I'd like to talk with you about. I really come in here. I try to keep as professional focus as possible. And when our conversations go in these directions, it it starts to distract me. And, and giving him those Great cues. sample language, Dan. I'm interrupting. Great sample language, Dan Bosenning. <laughs> Great. Setting boundaries in yeah. the workplace is part of being a good professional. But and... what I loved about how you did that was that you said, you know, I've never explained this to you, but I come in and I really do like to get this done and do this. And I, I do find it distracting or something. I like the fact that you were giving the work, the preferential treatment it needs and it didn't seem like it was your conversations are annoying and unnecessary. It's this is where I need to focus. And in order to do that, it's harder when these things are happening. The place I think where our listener could have some latitude in the moment is – and this is where I thought you were going. So I apologize for jumping on it. But the colonoscopy thing. If my boss started talking to me about colonoscopy and I don't want to be hearing about it, I would speak up in that moment. Sir, I'm going to let you know right now I'm not comfortable talking about this with you. And then change the subject or say, I'm going to go file that report. And that's it. And I do think that you can get away with that. I think that that's an okay thing to turn down in the moment. Or, you know, I'm not comfortable talking about that. But I do like it when we talk about the weather. (laughs) I can hear in this question too a real awareness of the balance, the acknowledgement this is a fair employer, that there are advantages to this job. And it's what's keeping me away from that advice of have the bottom line in your mind that you can find another job. That is a bottom line to keep in your mind. My mother would always say, imagine the best case scenario, imagine the worst case scenario. And what would you do to avoid one? What would you do to get the other? And – Sometimes just having those those concrete, real um, extremes in mind help you make good choices navigating in between. You say to yourself, no, I really – I like this job for all of these reasons. So it's worth investing in this relationship either with patients or with um, having that discussion that sets me up to enjoy my day-to-day here more. Work-life boundaries are always challenging. We hope that this discussion helps as you navigate some of the choices you have in front of you. I was a little worried about that first job. I guess everybody is. But Miss Purcell's advice kept running through my head. Enjoy it. 
and also enjoy the people that you're working with. And be considerate of your employer. Remember those simple rules of office etiquette, and you'll get along in the business world. Thank you for your questions. Please, please, please send us updates, comments, or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. And remember, sustaining members, please put sustaining member somewhere in your question. Or you can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette in your post so that we know you want your question or feedback on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today's feedback begins. Good afternoon, Lizzie and Dan. I'm so happy to have you in my ear and mm-hmm. have been a huge fan of this podcast for a long time now. I listen to you at work and in the car. I listen so often, my children are starting to be able to identify your voices. <laughs> Hello, children. Regarding the question in episode 208 about how to politely request fewer gifts for her newborn son, I loved everything you both suggested and also wanted to share a few methods I've seen people use. First option. One of my coworkers specifically asked everyone in her family to give her a letter for her child to open when he or she is 18 in lieu of a gift. People became excited to participate in this fun event, and during the gift opening time, they can all carefully place the envelopes into a pretty box decorated for your child. This particular option is fun because some people might also decide to include things like pictures, etc. It becomes a cherished memory box, and it's more of an event to participate in. You may even get more people to participate than just those who would have bought him a gift. Alternatively, you could ask for the letters and then put them into a scrapbook that includes a picture of the child with each person who wrote a letter. Then the scrapbook is given to the child when they reach a certain age. Again, it's a cherished memory that costs very little but becomes an amazing memory later on. Second option, if people insist on giving you something, another friend requests certificates to a local children's museum. She then combined the certificates to get her and her child a year-long pass to the children's museum as a fun way to get through the winter when he feels the need to explore and toddle around. This could work for a zoo pass as well. Using this method, many people are very happy to contribute to future fun and excitement for the child. Lucky for you, this option just happens to lead to less clutter as well. (laughs) The main point, totally. Many warm, fall pumpkin spice-scented wishes to you and all of my fellow AE friends, Sarah. Sarah, thank you for that feedback. Those are both great ideas. And it's the kind of thing we like to see, especially in those first couple years where the kids themselves aren't participating so much in the gift opening and unwrapping and things like that. Those both sound like really enriching gifts for a child, one more immediately and one for the future. I I love that feedback. I do, too. Our next piece of feedback begins, Hi, Dan and Lizzie. I was just listening to episode 209 and the question about charitable gratitude. I have done multiple charity fundraisers for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Shameless plug! A couple walks and three seasons with the half marathon team. I fundraised very heavily with friends and family over the five-year period, and those on my mailing list are now quite familiar with what Crohn's disease has meant for me. Happy to share my thoughts on handicapped bathroom question, too, but I think there's been quite a lot of feedback on that already. My network has been incredibly supportive in sickness and in health, but I digress. I am writing in to respond to the person who is raising money for the Alzheimer's walk, another worthy cause. 
When I was actively fundraising and doing races and walks, I sent handwritten thank you cards to everyone who donated to my fundraising page, more or less as they came in, and then followed up with those who donated with a post-race update with pictures so that my donors could experience the race with me. I have also donated to my friends' passion projects, and post-race follow-ups, as well as pre-race training updates, are a wonderful way to keep people engaged and feel like they have really made an impact. Having been on both sides, I know that each and every donor to my cause has made me feel truly blessed simply because they took the time to respond and or donate at whatever level. And seeing how the race or the event turned out for friends whom I've supported has given me that warm and fuzzy feeling that my contribution has made someone I care about feel appreciated. So to your question writer, any way in which you can send thanks to your donors will make them feel appreciated. And sending a few pictures doesn't hurt either. Warm regards, Rachel. Rachel, thank you for the feedback. We worked here at the Emily Post Institute with a woman for many years who had started off in the nonprofit field, and she was so focused and so keyed on making donors feel appreciated and extending those thanks, letting people know that it mattered to you that they contributed is a really important part of that whole process. Thank you for reinforcing that for us. And thank you to everyone who sent us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. We count on you to keep this etiquette discussion alive, and you do such a good job of doing that. You can send your next comment or update or question to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Here we are at a nice, friendly party. Watch carefully everything the people at this party do and say... Then ask yourself, would I rate them plus or minus as friends? Ready? Here we go. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript is all about how to be better at parties. Woohoo! Thank you, Jen Dahl, who writes for The New York Times and is someone that both Lizzie and I have spoken to over the years, spoken with. And she's an incredible writer who I think does a really good job of taking information from all kinds of sources and distilling them into very digestible, readable articles about human relationships, good etiquette, how to behave. And she has tackled the topic of how to be better at parties for The New York Times. And I think she did a really good job, not just because she <laughs> used a lot of the conversation that we had as a source for this article. And that's what led me to it. But it was a long article. And we want to break it up and talk about it in a couple of postscripts. We've shared it on our social media feeds at Facebook and on Twitter. You can find us at Emily Post Ince or the Emily Post Institute on Facebook or Awesome Etiquette on Facebook if you're looking for this link. Jen begins her piece talking about the arrival, how you show up for a party before you even begin the, the networking or the working of the room or the conversation skills component. And this is all from the guest's perspective, right? This is when you're a guest at a party? Absolutely. The okay, conceit cool. of this article a little bit is that some of us think of ourselves as introverts or have a harder time engaging socially. And these are <clears throat> awesome etiquette listeners who always write in telling us you're introverts. <laughs> and these are tactics for yeah. introverts to, to help them not just be successful but enjoy social situations. Her first major suggestion is one that that was one that we talked about, and I think it's a really nice idea, and it's to have a purpose, to think about why you're doing what it is you're doing. And that purpose doesn't need to be any more complicated than to be to relax or to meet a new friend. It could be to make a business connection if you're talking about business social functions, but so often in a social circumstance, 
for an introvert, someone like me, or not a complete introvert, but someone who has tendencies on that side of the spectrum, you might say to yourself, I just want to have a good conversation with someone tonight. And that can be enough to get you excited about leaving the apartment, leaving the house, getting in the car, getting in the subway and going somewhere. Count me in that camp. There's no subway involved. But I often look at parties or events as just a chance to have a nice conversation with someone else. Like I, It, it might make me sound really lonely to think that way. But honestly, you get into your routine and your kind of regular pace of life. And it's really nice to just have a conversation with someone else. And it makes going to a party so much less stressful when all I'm thinking about is, I'm just going to get to talk to some other people tonight. That feels easy to me. They talk about social goal setting being really important to achieve things. This is a very low bar social goal setting. It doesn't need to be social. You could say to yourself, I'm just going to taste some new food or some new wine. I'm going to eat something that I didn't cook for myself tonight. And that can be enough to, to, to give you some purpose, some direction, and that can totally change an experience or an event. Jen also mentions finding yourself an ensemble. And what she's really suggesting here, the advice that she's trying to drive to is to figure out a way to be comfortable with yourself. Wear something that is going to be appropriate for the experience. I would suggest that it goes even beyond this. Put on an attitude that is going to be comfortable Ah. for the experience. Remind yourself that it's important that you're comfortable. This is in some ways about fulfilling your own needs, your own purpose that you've just set. This isn't about putting extra pressure on yourself. This is about giving yourself permission to be comfortable, to find a way to make yourself comfortable. Her next suggestion is thinking about what you bring. And this is one of the places where she turned to Daniel Post-Senning and the Emily <laughs> Post Institute and said, what is the etiquette around a, a party gift or a hostess gift? Yeah. And a lot of people have in their mind the idea that you always show up with something in hand. And for some people, this makes them more comfortable. They like to show up with a little gift for the host or hostess. And by all means, if that makes you more comfortable, do it. Bring a little something. But Emily Post herself said that there was something to knowing someone well enough to be able to just show up, to be able to show up and engage socially and have your presence and participation be the gift that you bring. And I love that idea as well for more formal situations, for first meetings. By all means, bring that little something, that little that little something that acknowledges you're trying to make a contribution to the night, to the experience, and to thank the host for their work. For social gatherings, Remember that your presence is a gift as well, and don't undersell the value of that gift. I can definitely say as a host, I am very rarely expecting that anyone shows up other than with a smile on their face. And if we've decided upon like a potluck or something like that, the food that we said we'd bring. But it's I think people panic thinking that a host is going to think that you're rude if you show up without it. And absolutely not true. Couldn't be further from your host's mind. Now that you're prepared... Arrive on time. This idea of fashionably late, 20 minutes late, a half hour late, try to be there on time. People plan evenings. They plan events. There's going to be a flow to the night. Don't let a little lateness deter you from going completely, but make every effort to be timely, to show up. Consider. This was a great tip I thought that that Jen included in this piece. Going by yourself. Go alone. In parentheses, if you dare, she says. The idea is that people are more approachable when they show up alone. When you show up with a cadre of friends or even as a couple, in some ways you are a little less approachable. If you do show up with a group or with a partner or a spouse, consider making yourself available by... 
being available, separating, making an effort to work the room to engage people as individuals. It's not a have to, but it's just a thought. I got this advice from a friend of mine. We were at a show together, and there's a good-looking guy who I checked out at the show, and he had checked me out too. And my friend was like, this is stupid. Nothing's happening. And so when I went to the ladies' room, he went up to the guy and asked him, he said, hey, I'm pretty sure I've seen you checking out my friend, like, you know, and she's single if you want to meet her or something. Like, I mean, he totally, he totally worked it for me. He said, yeah, I'd love to say hi to her. She's just always talking to someone. So I didn't feel like I could. Huge revelation for me. Make yourself available. And by literally not just looking like a friendly, approachable person, but by having time where no one is with you. Having time is important. It's part of showing up on time also. If you're there from the start, you're part of the way the whole event grows and builds. You show up as other people are showing up as they're checking out the scene and establishing the social relationships and connections that are going to carry through that evening. The final component to the arrival, to the beginning of this party, and we will return (laughs) to this particular party in future postscripts, is the greeting. Mm. That when you arrive, you definitely want to say hi to people. You particularly want to say hi to the host. If you're familiar with those, you want to search them out if they're not there waiting for you at the door to greet you. But then also say hi to other party goers, others att- other attendees at the event. There are occasions in life where you are free to introduce yourself, to make social introductions. When you're walking down the street, it's not always the case. But when you show up at a social function, there is a certain permission that is granted as one of the special things about these kinds of events. So avail yourself of that opportunity and do say hi to people. It's true. And you don't have to have the same hellos for everybody. I feel like it's really easy, especially in those like mixed family friends parties where like some people are getting hugs and kisses and and bear hugs and kisses and other people you're shaking hands and it can feel very awkward and I find so often at those events people end up saying Dan's like awkwardly miming hellos across the we really need to get you on camera cuz um I find that that it's it almost like that handshake goes out the window so quickly And if you give a hug to your aunt and her new boyfriend is there, it's like, oh, we'll give you a hug, too. We'll give you a hug, too. And for someone who's introverted, that can just feel like a lot. It's still okay to put up your etiquette boundaries and say, I'm not a hugger, but here's a handshake. Or I'll hug you after our third dinner or something. You'd make a joke of it, make something light of it, but it's okay for you to set that boundary. Hi, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Standing my comfortable distance apart. (laughs) No gestures, no gestures yet. Um, But it it can be one of those things where you have a lot of mixed greetings going on, and it's okay if some are hugs, some are waves, some are handshakes. It's all good. In a future postscript, we will talk about when the time comes to mingle. (laughs) For now, I want to thank Jen Dahl for her good work. It was such a delight to see the way this piece turned out, and it was fun to share it with all of you. That's one way to behave when you're with your friends. Bill appears to be friendly and helpful. His actions are polite. He seems genuinely interested in other people. As you know, we like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and it can come in so many forms, and this one is... A toe dip into the world of politics. I know most of you cringe anytime we potentially bring up the subject on the show. And yes, I'm teasing you about that. But what I liked about this is that this takes modern technology and etiquette 
and really salutes people for being great about them. And it comes from our listener, Jane. Jane's been a longtime listener of the show. And this salute actually came with a a three-tip PSA with it. And we have included that PSA on our uh, social media accounts. So take a look for it. But it does have to do with those text messages that we're seeing people receive from political campaigns, you know, encouraging you to vote, getting you out there, asking you to participate. And Jane writes, my salute is for nearly everyone who has written back to my voter texts, whether they are on my team or the other ones. People have, for the most part, been so kind and respectful, even as they might have suspected that I could have been a robot. I'm filled with patriotic and optimistic joy, and I just wanted to share it. Love, Jane. I didn't know that these weren't robots. This was actually my first experience knowing that these voter texts that come in are, are actual real po- like poll often, volunteers. Like Often come from individuals who are volunteering to do this. Thank you. Yes, yeah. not poll volunteers. Individuals volunteering. Yes. And... What I love, um, actually, in the tips that you can go to go to our uh, social media to see is that Jane talks about how we want to encourage you to interact with us on this. Share your encouragement. If if we aren't your party, say I'm voting for the other guy, but good luck to you. Um, and I love the fact that it it's real people and it's real people behaving politely on what is at this point in time a pretty divisive topic in our national culture. And I really liked the support and the optimism that Jane's comment um, and her tips give to us all. Jane, thanks for sharing. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. And sustaining members, remember to put sustaining members somewhere in your question. By phone, you can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Lizzie A. Post. And I'm at Daniel underscore Post. On Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider helping us out. You can become a sustaining member of the Awesome Etiquette family by visiting awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thank Thank you, you, Chris. Chris.